listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Oh, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, Again, my name is Clint, and I'm so glad each and every one of you has joined us this morning. If you want to get out your Bibles, turn to Genesis 15. It's where we'll be today. We're into week two of our new series, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm so excited about this series, y'all. Genesis is one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. But before we get to uh, the text, I have had an incredible week, and I cannot, I haven't, I've been so eager to tell you all about it. It was unbelievable. Uh, random circumstance, a lot of things happening this week. Actually, and I, the only way I can explain it is they ran out of people to invite. I actually got to have breakfast with Tony Evans this week. Yeah, I know, right? And man, such a humble guy, such a nice guy, and was asking all kind of questions about Bethel. And as I was talking and telling about this place, he could just not stop talking about what a great church that we have. And that was Great, but it got even more amazing. I had no way of knowing this, but right afterwards, he was having lunch with our governor, Governor Greg Abbott. And he told Governor Abbott about our church. And I guess, I don't know, maybe he was bored. He went and actually listened to our podcast. And I got an email this week from Governor Greg Abbott. And all he could talk about, he, he said, y'all have the best church. And he says, and you, you must be the best pastor. And now Lori is laughing. I don't know what's funny about that. Wait till I tell you this part. Right after I read that email, y'all, the spirit of Billy Graham descended, and he's coming to our potluck next month. How about that? It's amazing. Obviously, none of that is true, although I still resent the laughter, okay? But that's an example of name dropping. You've all done this, right? Name dropping, you know what this is? If you want other people to think you're great, well, here's what you got to do. You got to find a way to like humble brag about how other awesome people think you're awesome. And that's how name dropping works, right? Well, at least that's what Brad Pitt told me when he came to my birthday party. That's how I explained it to you. Here's what's surprising all throughout the Old Testament. God is terrible at name dropping. I mean, he does it. He's just really bad at it. Like, I don't think he knows how it works. I think first one of us that gets to heaven, please someone explain it to him because he's doing it and he's bad at it. Because over and over again, and not just randomly, but like at key, very important times, when he appears to Moses at the burning bush, he self-identifies as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had a lot of other options of how to explain who he was. He could have said, I'm the God of the real heroes, Hercules, Pharaoh, Artaxerxes, or his creation. I'm I'm the God that created all the stars and all the planets, or his attributes. He could have said, you know what? I'm the God of power and might and miracles. And Abraham would have said, wow. But no, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, we found out last week, Abraham was a coward and a liar. This week, I wish it was a better report. This week, he's going to be a whiner and a doubter. And later, we'll read about Isaac and Jacob. But, Jake, y'all, Jacob's name means deceiver. That's his name. So if you never met me, you didn't know anything about my life, but you knew my mom named me Jerkface, you're going to read the context clues, aren't you? No, I'm not a good guy. 
Yet God introduces himself by saying, I'm the God who has bound myself to the coward, the liar, the whiner, the doubter, yea, even the deceiver. See, God wants you to know he's a God so powerful, so abounding in steadfast love that he even works through people like this. And if he works through them, he can work through you too. And if he kept his promise to them, he'll keep his promise to you too. See, God doesn't want us to be the hero. And in fact, he, he established a pattern last week we saw where the way we have a relationship with him is not we're the man, we're the hero, and so God name drops us. The way we have a relationship with him is he makes a promise. And God's people build their whole lives on top of that promise. And that's called faith. And faith is all God wants from us. That is it. But today, in chapter 15, Abraham's kind of on this journey to faith. He's, he's seen some things, but you know what? He still has some questions. And his questions go things like this. Yeah, but how can I really know? I mean, how can I really know that I can trust you with my whole life? How can I know that, God? And God's response, you know what God's response is? He says, you can trust me with your whole life because I'm going to give you mine. That's what his response is. So let's turn to Genesis 15. We're going to read starting in verse 1 in just a moment. Uh, But first, I want to show you a slide that's kind of going to give us the structure of chapter 15. So this slide is for you you nerds out there. I know there's there's dozens of us in the room, I know. But y'all, I don't want to nerd out too much on you, but in the Hebrew text, in the Old Testament, the structure is often so important. There's so much to be found in the structure. So what we're going to see is the same pattern repeated twice. God's going to reveal himself, make some promises. First set of promises has to do with seed and descendants. Then it's going to be about land. And then Abraham has his moment, probably the best translation of what Abraham says is something like this. But God, he has his but God moment. He doubts, he questions. And then God's going to respond by coming close and confirming. He's going to come close to Abraham and confirm his promises. We're going to see that pattern repeated twice. So keep that pattern in your mind as we read the first six verses. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elizer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the first thing we get is God reveals himself and confirms his promise. This time the way he says it is, I'm going to be your shield. That's a promise of protection. You find that promise throughout Scripture, Psalms 3, Psalms 18, Psalms 28. And God had already proven this in this whole episode with Pharaoh that we saw in chapter 12. Then he's proved it again in chapter 13, chapter 14. 
And then he reminds Abram that your reward is going to be very great. He's already told him this. You won the lottery. You're going to be famous. You're going to have a great nation. In fact, all the earth is going to be blessed through you. So he's reaffirming what he's already promised. To which Abraham, this great man of faith, responds, But God... He doesn't write the next great worship song. He doesn't go put a cross up in his house. He starts doubting and asking questions. But you know, you can hardly blame Abram. He first received these promises 10 years ago. And he's been wandering around for 10 years. And he still doesn't have a son. It still seems like nothing has happened. And it's been a decade, 10 years. But in his doubting, Abraham does what I often do and what I guess you often do, we try to change in our minds what God said. Maybe God didn't really say what he said. Maybe what he meant was Eleazar, this guy, my household servant. And under the customs of the day, if somebody dialed childless, yeah, then the, the head household servant would inherit all of his property and land and everything, and we'd, we'd be considered essentially legally his descendant. And that's fine. That's a perfectly fine custom. The problem is that's not what God had said. That is not what God had promised would happen. And so in verse 4 and 5, we get God's response. He comes close to Abraham, and he confirms his promise. And y'all, I think this is, I think this is one of the most tender, fatherly, loving moments in all of Scripture. He brings Abraham outside on one beautiful, clear, starry night. He says, Abraham, look up at those stars. That's what your descendants will be like. Abraham, I meant what I said. And he uses this moment of doubt. He uses these questions and these confusions from Abraham. Listen, not to shame Abraham, but to teach him. To teach him about himself and to bring him near. And then we get verse 6, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. In fact, the book of Romans is really just a commentary on this verse, on verse 6. It says, Abram believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what's God saying there? He's saying he had belief. That word belief, the root word, it means to be reliable, steadfast, to be dependable. And so the text is saying Abraham decided God was dependable. He could depend on God and he could count on him. So faith, belief, it turns out, it's way more about God than it was about Abraham. It's really, it's simply Abraham saying, oh wait, I can't rely on myself. I can only rely on God. I can depend on him. And that was credited as righteousness. So righteousness means conformity to a standard. The one who is righteous matches God's exact specifications. But here's the deal. His specifications are perfect. They allow for no deviation. And we've seen enough to know, and we'll keep seeing this over and over. This pattern's going to be repeated. Abraham has faith at times, but he is far from perfect. He does not at all measure up to perfection. And so what this verse is saying, this is the miracle of the gospel. He's saying, when you trust God, it's like God does a currency exchange. So it's like you go to deposit dollars, and he exchanges it into something like British pounds or some other kind of currency, and that's what gets put into your account. So when you decide that God is dependable enough to build your whole life around, that faith 
gets credited to your account as meeting the standard, as perfect, as measuring up to God's perfect standard. And so Paul, this is Paul's whole point. If you go read Romans 4, and I encourage you to do that week, Abraham, he is never called righteous because he follows the law. Not one iota. Never is he called righteous for that. He simply believes, you know what? I'm not dependable. God's dependable. And then he gets all the righteousness he needs. That's how it works. Now, this should bring up some very important questions. I have questions about this. How is this possible? Is God just making up some kind of fictional righteousness? Is God a liar? I mean, isn't a failure a failure? Isn't sin sin? How on earth can God credit righteousness to someone who doesn't really have it? Well, the second part of the chapter tells us how God can count your belief as righteousness. So let's pick it back up in verse 7. We'll read verse 7 and 8. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, let's put, look at our chart again because we're, we're going to follow the same pattern. God revealed himself, made a promise. Abraham's response, but God, how do I know? Right? So what should be coming next? What should be coming next? God's going to come close and confirm. So what lovingly, fatherly display will we get next from God? Well, let's read verse 9. He, that's God, said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Huh? I saw it on Randy's face. Huh? Instead of, look at the stars, we get, bring me a heifer. That's what we get. And cut it in half. What's going on here? Well, God's not throwing a backyard barbecue for Abraham. That's not what's happening. What's happening is one of the most amazing displays in all of Scripture. And Abraham knew right away. Abraham knows right away what God is doing. Because it was common in that day. And you know what? He would have been petrified. He would have been terrified. See, in the Old Testament, you didn't make a covenant or sign a covenant. You cut a covenant. And so most places in your Old Testament where it's translated, they made a covenant. The word there is actually cut. They cut a covenant. And y'all, they took covenants way more seriously than we like take contracts today. So if you, back then, if you broke the covenant, you didn't pay a fine. You didn't even go to jail. You paid with your life. And the way they confirmed this, they didn't have pen and paper. They couldn't sign on the line, dotted line. So instead of signing on the dotted line, they demonstrated their commitment to this relationship and to this covenant. And so what Abram would have done was he would have brought these animals and he would have dug a ditch right in between them. And he would have cut the animals in half and laid them on either side of the ditch so that the blood would have drained right into the ditch, the little ditch between the animals. Now, then, they probably wore sandals or something. They, they, so you had animals, you had a ditch filled with blood, and then what they would do is they would kick off their sandals, and they would go, and they would stomp in the blood. And by stomping in the blood, you're saying, if I don't hold up mine to the covenant, may I become like these animals. 
to be serious. Something you got to understand, there's, back then when you made covenants, there weren't equal partners. So there's a greater party and a lesser party. Usually that's a king and some lesser, vast, what they call the vassal, lesser king that just got conquered. And the greater party sets all the terms. So notice you don't, you don't see Abraham bargaining, negotiating here. No, no, no. The greater party gets to set all the terms. He sets both sides of the covenant. But this is considered an act of grace. Because the other option is that greater king just squishes you like a bug. But by making a covenant with you, he is showing that he wants an ongoing relationship with you. And only the lesser party walked the blood. So the greater party is making the covenant. It's assumed he'll keep his part of the covenant. The lesser party is the one who has to tread his feet in that blood and say, if I don't hold up my end, may I become like these animals. And so we get to the pivotal moment. Abraham knows exactly what God wants him to do. Abraham knows he is supposed to walk the blood. And on the one hand, I just picture him being torn because on the, on the one hand, he knows God of the universe has made unbelievable promises to him. You've won the lottery. You're going to have a great nation. You're going to have the best land. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. But you know what? More than that, even more than that, the, the, the way he won the lottery was that God had promised himself to Abraham. God had promised, I will be your God. Abraham, I'm going to marry myself to you. It's amazing. Who wouldn't want that? But on the other hand, he knows there's no free lunch. He has to keep his end of the covenant. And later, God will clarify what that is. He says, Abraham, all you got to do, no big deal, just be blameless. Be perfect. My standard is righteousness. That's all you got to do, Abraham. And so Abraham knows that he's going to have to step in that blood and promise to be blameless. And I just picture, you know, he, he wants all that God wants to give him, but he knows he can never live up to the expectations. So what does Abraham do? Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So when the going gets tough, Abraham takes a nap. I kind of like Abraham. I can identify with that. In fact, that really the text tells us he's not just falling asleep. He's not just taking a nap. It's a dreadful darkness. Most likely he passed out from terror. Because he knows. He knows he's, eventually, he's essentially about to sign his own death warrant. And he really doesn't have a choice. So here we go. Fast forward to verse 17, though. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What we see instead is smoke and fire come down. This is a theophany, an appearance of God. Where have you seen God described as smoke and fire? Well, twice in Exodus, these exact same words appear as God descends Mount Sinai. And then later, as his people are wandering through the wilderness, they are led by a pillar of fire by day and smoke by night. And what happens while Abraham is terrified, passed out from terror, the smoke and the, this fire, they come down and they walk the blood instead of Abraham. Essentially what happens is God comes down and he stomps in that blood and he says, if you fail to keep your end of the covenant, may I become like these animals. 
And what you have just witnessed is the signing of Jesus' death warrant. In that moment, God is opening himself up to the full consequences of all the sin that lies ahead from his people. All the disobedience, idolatry, greed, cruelty, vanity, selfishness, and the pride that fills every page of the Bible and every page of all of our lives. And after thousands of years of God's people just flagrantly disregarding the covenant, this man named Jesus is going to appear on the earth. And on a hill outside Jerusalem, next to some criminals, on a cross, Jesus will honor the covenant that he made this day in Genesis 15. And that, that is why God can tell Abram, if you just believe in me, you'll be righteous because I'm going to do it all. God is saying, listen, listen, you can trust me with your whole life because I'm going to give you mine. That's what God is saying here. And men and women, listen, this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview in the whole world. Because every other religion says, you know what? You have to depend on your own righteousness. You have to meet the standard. And so even if it's atheistic, you say, okay, how, how can I be accepted? Whether it's by God, by a group of friends, by society. Well, you have to be a good person. Well, how am I a good, per- good person? Here's your list. I mean, we're experts at making lists. If you're Muslim, just get a list of five things. Confession, prayer, alms, fasting, pilgrimage. Just five things. That's easy. And society might be, well, you should vote for the right people. You support the right cause. Here's the list of words you can't say. You know, there's all kind of lists. You know what? You're welcome to try it that way. You are welcome to depend on your own righteousness. But if you do, you have to walk the blood yourself. You have to rise or fall on your own merits. And if you don't measure up, you're out. Christianity is totally different and unique. It says, you believe in the righteousness of another. Christianity says, so not a single one of us is capable of meeting God's standards. We walk that blood, we're signing our death warrant, right? But, remember verse 6, when you believe that God is more dependable than you, then God takes that belief and credits it as righteousness to you. When you say, I'm not the hero, God is. That's why we don't go around name dropping around here, right? You know what? It's real interesting. You read 1 Corinthians 3, and the church had gotten the habit of some of this. Some of people were like, I don't know if you know, but I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I don't know if you know, but uh, Paul came over to my house for dinner. Like we're all supposed to go, oh, ooh, wow, very impressive. You know, we can, we, I make fun of that. We can easily fall into that trap. I've heard people say, I don't, hey, do you, I don't know if you know who baptized me. Or, you know, you know, one of the elders is in my fantasy football team. But I think maybe more common than name dropping for us is activity dropping. Here's all the books I read. Here's all the Bible studies I go to. Here's all the ways I serve. I'm working really hard around here. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no, 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 no. No. There's only one name that means anything around here. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. His name matters because he's the one that walked the blood for you. So he can be trusted. You can depend on him. In fact, it's the only thing you can depend on. That's it. But what do we do if we're like our friend Abraham here in chapter 15? 
and we're just not there yet. If we're not quite sure, we can fully depend on God for every aspect of my life. Have you been there? I've been there. I think we all have our, our but God moments, right? Maybe in a general sense, you doubt. You know, there's lots of people who make claims out there about God. How do I know that this is real? How do I know this is right? Maybe you used to believe, but you feel like God disappointed you. He let you down. And so you don't know if you can trust him anymore. Maybe you doubt with a particular part of your life. Can I trust God with my finances? What if he asked me to give some of it up and I'm less comfortable? I worked hard for this. Can I trust him with my time? Can I trust him with my problems? Man, some, some of you are like Abraham. I've been wandering around aimlessly for 10 years, and I feel like nothing's happening. You know, I think it's unfortunate. Oftentimes, the church can be a place where it's not okay to doubt. You know, we're kind of all happy faces and amens. And hey, listen, that's good. I'm so glad people are excited about coming to church. That's good. And it is a good thing for people to experience God and, and express that and happiness and joy. That's great. You know, sometimes, though, I think when everyone has to act and feel the same, we hinder the journey that God is trying to take us on. But there's something else that I think is equally as unfortunate. So it's unfortunate sometimes church isn't a place it's okay to doubt. It's equally as unfortunate. You know what? Sometimes the world is a place where you never move beyond doubt. So it's gotten real hip and real trendy these days to just go around and challenge and criticize and deconstruct what other people believe. You know, and you can do it. If you want to get a bunch of followers, just go criticize everybody else and the world will pat you on the back, say, yeah, you, you go get them, you know, but you'll never move beyond your doubt into something you do believe. You will never arrive at what you can depend on, on what actually is true. And so there's lots of people who love to just play gotcha with questions, you know, like, can God create a rock so big even he can't lift it? Gotcha. God's law proved it. And we'll go around asking these silly questions, but never do the, the hard work of the real questions of life. Questions about purpose and meaning and good and evil and love and eternity. And you're clueless about those things. You're, you're not really seeking truth. If you're in any of those spaces today, I think we can learn from God's response to Abraham. See, God will answer your honest doubts, but he wants to lead you past them to faith. He will. He will answer your honest doubts, but he wants to lead you past them to faith. Your doubts and your questions, they are stops along your journey, but they aren't the final destination, so don't stay there. So do it instead. Do what Abraham did. Talk to God about your doubts. Ask him your questions. And then, and then, Listen. Listen to him. How do we do that? Well, I think we reflect on what God has already done in our lives. That's what God asked Abraham to do after he gives his promise. He's going to keep pointing back to them. We can read his word. You can spend some time in prayer. You can look for him in your daily life. Expect to find him. You can talk to God's people. Listen, this is a safe place. This is a safe place to ask questions you don't have the answer to yet. If you're in that season doubt, here's what I want you to know. Jesus said, seek and you will find. He's not hiding from you. He's really not. Instead, 
Instead, maybe God is using this time of doubt not to be disappointed in you or to make you suffer or to play hide and seek, but to draw you near to him. To draw you near to him just like he did Abraham. Listen, you look back on Abraham's life, the most profound experiences he had with God were times when God was answering his questions. I thought about my kids this week. You know, there's times when my kids, they have questions, maybe they have a nightmare and they're scared. And in those times, they come close to me. They sit in my lap and they put their arms around me. Their questions bring us close. And as much as I wish they weren't scared, I love that they come close to me. You know, and I would guess those of you in here who kids have gotten past that age, you probably actually kind of miss it. You kind of miss the times when your kids' questions brought them close to you. Maybe that's what God wants to do with you. But as you go down the journey, listen, just know this, know this. God is more interested in coming close to you than in giving you all the information you seek. By the time we get to end of chapter 15, think about Abram. A lot of his questions are still unanswered. There's still a whole lot he does not know. Yet, Abraham knows everything he needs to know because he watched God himself walk the blood for him. That's all he needed to know. So when you don't know who to trust with your whole life, remember, he has already given his life for you so you can trust him. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.